This is episode 7 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and on today's episode we have Yvette McCoy. She is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and owns a private practice clinic in Maryland called Speak Well Solutions. Yvette is also an adjunct instructor at the University of Maryland in College Park. Yvette has over 25 years of experience in the field and specializes in treating dysphagia in our aging population. Yvette is so stinking down to earth. She's very real. She's one of the kindest people you will ever meet. She loves to help younger clinicians and I'm secretly very jealous of her grad students. She's very passionate about teaching evidence-based practice in dysphagia. Yvette has training in the area of fees and MBSIMP. She is a co-creator of the Dysphagia Therapy app through Tactus Therapy, and she also has two CEU courses through Northern Speech Services, one about cranial nerves and the other one about the aging swallow. In this episode, we discuss how to advocate to your boss for the tools that you need to do your job. We'll also discuss Dr. Susan Langmore's Predictors of Aspiration paper, and we discuss the importance of the evidence-based triad in your practice. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. So I know you guys are always asking me what like the latest and greatest courses are as far as treatment. And I will totally admit, since I do diagnostics all day, that sometimes I fall behind on keeping up with the latest treatment CEUs. And I'd always heard that eSTEM was, you know, you know, it's so effective for PTs and OTs. You see them using it all the time, but there's definitely a lot of controversy with it as far as speech pathologists using it to rehab the swallow. So Believe me, I've been the ultimate skeptic on Easton for a while now, but uh, my buddies Rick and Russ from AmpCare, uh, they swindled me into taking their online CEU course a few months back, and I'm not going to lie, you guys, it was so good. Like, I was totally hooked. And so Rick is a fellow SLP, just like the rest of us, um, but Russ is a physical therapist with an extensive knowledge, eSTEM, that he's used as a modality throughout his entire PT career. So like I said, I took this course a while back uh, when I was actually studying for my board certification exam. Their CEU course is considered an advanced course, so for anyone that needs advanced CEUs, if you're working towards your BCS, uh, hop on this course. But anyways... The entire first half of the course is like all about basic muscle physiology, the makeup of the actual swallowing muscle fibers, a killer review of the cranial nerves, probably like the most elaborate review that I've had since grad school. And I'm pretty sure I didn't pay this close attention in grad school to the anatomy and physiology. But like I said, I was totally hooked on this course. Um, And you guys know I keep it real. I don't sugarcoat things here. So Another thing that I just super appreciated about this course is they go into detail about the populations that are best served with this treatment and the populations that should not undergo eSTEM. So it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment, but it has shown some awesome outcomes as far as improving the swallow. And in their course, they also discuss why they use the electrode size and shape that they do, the various parameters on the unit, which it does vary from other Easton manufacturers, so that's important to note. So 
since Rick and Russ are super nice guys, they're offering 50 bucks off their CEU course exclusively for Swallow Your Pride listeners. So they have a bunch of upcoming live courses. There's one September 30th in Alexandria, Louisiana. There's one October 13th. There's actually two October 13th. I guess they're going to divide and conquer here, but October 13th, one in Fort Worth, Texas, and one in Vegas, and then also October 20th in Oklahoma City. And then they also have dates still need to be confirmed, but they are having live courses coming up in Seattle, LA, Phoenix, San Diego, and Dallas. So I would totally highly recommend you guys get to a live course if you can. These guys are so fun and they just make it really easy to understand this super complex info. Um, so if you're near any one of those cities, yeah, head to this course. But the cost of the live conference is usually $325, bucks, but $275 for Swallow Your Pride listeners. And if your facility does purchase the actual device, so the actual eSTEM unit costs $649 regularly your training will be further discounted down to 200 bucks. But if you can't get to a live course, they're also offering 50 bucks off their online course, which that's a course that I took and it's still, it's phenomenal, super entertaining. And just, like I said, it's a, this is a great course, but course will only cost you a hundred bucks. You can sit and watch it on your couch with a glass of wine and get 0.8 advanced CEUs. So also, not going to lie, the training manual that comes with this course is really good too. I referred back to it so many times when I was studying for my BCS exam. Just it's a great anatomy review, cranial nerve review. Yeah, that manual is great as well. So go to swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to register for any of these courses. And also, if you just head over to their website, you guys, they have some really cool videos showing the eSTEM unit at work. And they also have a review of all the literature that they have to support their FDA cleared device and protocol. And yes, I am working on getting them on the podcast very, very soon. But anyways, go check out swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to check out their courses and sign up for this training. Our iTunes review of the week comes from Lysandra out of Texas and it's titled Above and Beyond. And she writes, I'm so impressed with everything about this podcast. It has inspired me in my CF to become more knowledgeable and work harder for my patients. And it has challenged me to be the best clinician I can be. I had so many questions following the first of these podcasts. And Ed and Teresa both reached out to me, took time to answer my questions, and offered excellent advice while also challenging me to think critically. This podcast is thought-provoking, engaging, and motivational. I've already begun implementing these practical bits of information into my daily clinical schedule. As a new CF in a long-term care skilled nursing setting, where my supervisor only sees me once a month, it could not come at a better time. Thanks, y'all. Did you guys love my Texas y'all? I hope I didn't embarrass my, <laughs> my Texas friends with that. But, Lysandra, thank you so much for writing that. And let me just say, you are like the model CF in the way you worded your questions to us, and you were just such a sponge in your responses to and wanting to learn more. And that's really all that I can ask for this podcast is just people being open to listening to the new ideas, and you're a rock star. So just two final reminders before we get into this episode, but just a few days left to enter that big Swallow Your Pride giveaway. 
Uh, the grand prize winner gets a $500 gift card to Northern Speech Services. That's like totally incredible. Thank you so much, Northern. Uh, two winners will get a one-year subscription to Dysphagia Grand Rounds. Thanks, Rinky and Dr. Humbert. And another lucky winner will get a one-year subscription to MedBridge, that premium membership. So to enter that giveaway, you have to go to SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, enter your name and email in that green box there. Go to iTunes and subscribe, and also go to iTunes and leave a review, and I will be drawing the winner at 10 a.m. on Friday, September 29th. So that's reminder number one. Reminder number two is the free upgrade to the premium package through MedBridge Education. That free upgrade offer ends on September 30th. So if you're wanting to take advantage of that deal, it's 95 bucks for unlimited CEUs, and then you get the free upgrade to the premium plan, which comes with the app, the home exercise builder, and the patient handout. So if you want to hop on that super steal, get on it before September 30th. So all you have to do is go to medbridgeeducation.com, click on speech language pathology as the discipline, go to the SLP education plan, and then at checkout, enter promo code SYP and you will automatically be upgraded to that premium package. So they have to do it manually on their end. So if it doesn't look like it's working right away, give it a minute or a day and, and it'll happen. Okay, thanks. Hi, Yvette. Hello, Teresa. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. Excited to be here. All right. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm an old speech pathologist. I've been Stop doing it. <laughs> for about, I think this is my 25th year, which I'm almost embarrassed to say. Um, That's but I've so been, exciting. <laughs> I've been doing this for a really long time. Um, I started out in inpatient rehab when I was a young clinician um, after I did my, after I completed my CFY. Um, and I did that for some time, and I married a Marine and moved all over the world, and I landed here in Southern Maryland. Um, and I was a stay-at-home mom for some time, and then I started a private practice. And I was working in a hospital do doing a lot of acute care. And I am finally just kind of settling in to dysphagia. I earned my board certification two and a half years ago. And I um, work for MedStar National Rehab Hospital, and I developed a fees program for them. And, and I also teach the dysphagia class to graduate students at the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm an adjunct instructor there. So I've got so three exciting. kids. I um, have a daughter in college, and I have a 15-year-old son and a 7-year-old son and a big old dog. And that's typically how my day rolls. It's revolved around work and my family. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, the reason I wanted to have you on here is somebody brought up in one of the Facebook groups. Everyone's always talking about they get all this new technology or their facility, you know, just throws money at them. And, and everyone jumped in like, no, that's not really how it happens at all. No, nobody's facility just throws money at them. Absolutely not. And then you wrote something like, you know, no, I had to present the research to the people I work with. And then you said that you also actually make your graduate students do a project where they have to advocate for a product that they want. And I thought that was just 
awesome. I don't ever want to critique a, a, a dysphagia instructor because that's got to be such a hard thing to teach. But some of them just get so focused, I think, in like the textbook stuff. Yeah. And don't really go outside the box. And I think that's why I love kind of what you're doing and a couple of the other people are doing because they really, you know, force the students to think outside the box. There's a lot of other things that go into our job than just the anatomy and physiology, which is important, but you're right. You've got to learn to do these other skills too. So. You're absolutely right. And I think it's very kind of you to say that you love the idea of um, me and the students advocating for um, qu- equipment, but I don't, I mean, obviously I don't know that they would say the same thing because whenever I bring it up, there's lots of grumbles, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but you're yeah. right. I think that it starts in the classroom and I, don't, I just don't think that it's anything that's being taught and it should be part of our curriculum, just like teaching um, students how to do a complete bedside swallow eval or a language eval or a language sample for that matter. But I think you're right. I think that it starts in the classroom and we should be teaching future clinicians how to do this. Just like we're teaching them how to do a bedside swallow eval, how to do um, an aphasia eval or a language sample with kids, whatever is a part of our everyday clinical life is what we should be teaching them in the classroom. And I think that if we continue to accept the notion that we can manage our patients' medical conditions without the proper diagnostic tools, we're not only doing ourselves a disservice as a, you know, as a, as a field or as a discipline, um, because dysphagia is a medical condition, but, but we're also doing our patients a huge disservice. And uh, quite often, I can use a personal example myself. I work in an outpatient facility, and, in, and the outpatient facility where I work, there's no access to instrumentation, none. So I kept getting all of these orders to see patients from doctors, and they want to know, is this person aspirating? And it was so frustrating because not only for me, but for the patients. So patients would come and they would, you know, spend their time and energy driving to the outpatient facility. They get there. I would tell them, unfortunately, I, there's nothing I can do to help you right now. Let's see if we can get you a modified barium swallow, or let's see if we can get you a fee somewhere because I don't have the information to treat you. I can't treat something that I can't see. And so this is one of the mantras that we have in our classroom, in my classroom too. I say, repeat after me, guys. We cannot treat what we cannot see. And I think that if you start putting that into the minds of these young clinicians, then it becomes almost natural for them to think, well, I can't, I can't do this. You know, how, how am I supposed to know what's happening here? But, but it's something that needs to be taught. Back to my outpatient facility, finally I said to my supervisor, I, we can't do this anymore. I said, I am touting myself as a board-certified clinician, yet I don't even have what I need to do my job. And oh boy, they fought me to the nail. They said no, they said no, and they said no again. Finally, there was a physical therapist who was wanting to do some craniofacial work in the facility where we're very lucky that I have a, a physical therapist who worked with me who was very interested in the muscles and of the head and neck. So she was very well versed. We did a lot of dysphagia therapy together. And 
she said that if she was going to start this cranial facial piece, then we might need to look at fees because then we would be getting a lot of these patients. So I said, well, you know, I've tried that a year ago and it didn't go over very well. So together we, we tried again. We were successful. But the point, you know, I'm making a very long drawn out story short. The point that I'm wanting to make is that it wasn't until I decided, okay, I cannot see these kinds of patients at all. And, and unfortunately, it had to hit the powers that be, the administrative staff in the pocketbook, because they began to see how many patients, how much money we were losing, how, mu- how much revenue was lost because we were having to turn these patients away. So that was, you know, enough leverage for me to say this, this is all revenue that be- could be coming right into this clinic. And you have someone here who has a passion for dysphagia, and, I, and I'm not able to do my job because I don't have the tools to do my job. And it didn't happen overnight, but I was resolute, and I would not see a patient who had dysphagia unless they had had some sort of instrumental exam. If they had a diagnosis of dysphagia or if the doctor was concerned that there might be dysphagia, I wouldn't see them unless they came to me with an instrumental exam. And I think the problem has become that, you know, for administrative staff, they say, well, the therapist before you didn't need that. Why do you need that? And so then that's when you have to start, you know, showing them what the research says and showing them this is what the literature says and backing it up with research, but also your clinical expertise. That is also part of, you know, that evidence-based practice triad. It's the research. It's the clinician expertise. It's the patient and family values and what's important to them. I mean, all three of those things make up evidence-based practice. And so, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, we're thinking about what does the research say? The research tells us that we cannot rely on clinical indicators solely to tell us whether or not a person is aspirating. They can give us an idea, they can, it can give us information to treat our patients, but we can't rely on that information solely, especially a firm diagnosis is needed. We, we just, we can't rely on the clinical bedside exam. So, and then if you look at it again from patient, from, I'm thinking functionally, you know, from a patient's standpoint, it's frustrating for patients to go from doctor to doctor and not be, be able to get quite a, a diagnosis. I'd be quite if I spent like 10, 15, 20 treatment sessions with someone and we still don't have any concrete data that things are improving. Like, I think exactly. I'd just be downright pissed. <laughs> so, and then on the flip side of that, think about coming to a facility thinking you're going to get an answer and then the person tells you, well, I can't help you because I don't have any instrumentation. You'd yeah. be outraged. You'd be outraged yeah. if you went to a doctor's office and the doctor said, well, I can't listen to your heart today. I don't have, we're out of stethoscopes. But I come actually back. had a, you know, I, I'm <laughs> obviously such a proponent for instrumental assessments, but a few months back, my son had to go see a pediatric specialist for a condition he has. Uh-huh. And I called to make the appointment. The pediatrician made the referral. I called the specialist to make the appointment and they said, okay, well, you have to call Children's Hospital and get this test done first. And it was like a pretty invasive test. And I was like, I don't want to do the test. And she's like, okay, well, then the doctor won't see him. And I was like, what? And she's like, well, there's nothing he can do. He can't He can't treat your son unless we have the test done and we know what's wrong. Okay, so And that's... I was like, oh, well, isn't that a reality check? Because yeah. that's exactly what I do. Yep. So then you got so... your answer. That's exactly what we, yeah. what we do. 
uh, or what we should be doing. And you know what? And I, you know, I didn't think that my son's condition was as bad as it was. And then we got the test done and it was much worse. And now we've treated it appropriately and it's not an issue anymore. Yeah. You know, so had we not done the test, who knows where we would have been. So I just keep kind of going back to that in my own practice. You know, sometimes we think our patients are fine. And then Stephen Leader did that study where 14% of our patients are silently aspirating and at the bedside. We don't know that. Exactly. You know. Exactly. So, And so those are the kinds of things that I think we need to start teaching graduate students. These are the kind, we just at least need to be planting that seed in their mind that this is, you know, this is part of what we do. This is part of our job as well. And it's important for you to, to be able to have the tools to do your job so that your patients are um, benefiting from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit, how do you kind of teach your grad students to do this? Do you do like an interview type thing? Do you make them come to you or do you make them write out a proposal? Or, Well, what we do is um, typically we start with everybody is divided into groups. And I start with some case studies and we talk about the case studies in class. And within their groups, then they have to decide, does this person need, I mean, so there's some critical thinking that goes along with it. Does this person need to have an instrumental exam? If they do, why? If they don't, why not? And so then they're also required to have some literature to back them up. And then we role play it a little bit in class. And I am the administrator who says no to everything. (laughs) And so each group comes up and they're trying to convince me that we need this piece of equipment. And so for some people, for, for one group, it might be fees. For another group, it might be SEMG. For another group, it might be IOP. And then for the last group, it may be um, NMES, which is always a fun, hot topic because they they are in these Facebook groups as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So they're always thinking that, that there are many um, electrical STEM companies out there and they always kind of tend to refer to the just one. And so we, we have quite lively discussions. I'm sure. So at any rate, after we role play it in class and I am the mean administrator that says no to everything and they have convinced me, then I have them write it up and then they present it to the class in front of their peers and they write up their advocacy project and how they came to their conclusions. And then, of course, I grant everyone all their wishes and we have this fabulous (laughs) speech pathology department that has everything they need to do their job. And And then you eat larynx cake. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, Actually, this year, uh, last year, this year, we didn't have time to do the full advocacy project. But last year, last summer, we did. And it was just it was really a lot of fun. And I've had students email me back and thank me. And I have told them that they don't have to you don't have to be belligerent. You don't have to be snarky. You don't. You don't, you don't even have to be demanding. What you're doing is just presenting a case for why you need what you need. And they're going to ask you about the numbers. They're going to ask you why you need this but the person before you didn't need it. So I think 
that just, like I said, planting the seed and having them start thinking about, well, I don't have to just, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. I can actually look at the research. I can decide what best practice is. And I can say to my administrator, in order for me to really do my job well and for benefit of the patient, this is what I'm going to need to do it. So, yeah, and it's a lot of fun. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback from the students about it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I, I know there was a girl right now that I'm, I'm dealing with. She's trying to get fees in her building and they really won't even listen to her. You know, she's like, I've yeah. tried to talk to the, to the DOR. I've tried to talk to the administrator and, you know, she's like, what do I even do? And, you know, I asked her, I'm like, do you have any experience kind of advocating for something? And she's like, no, I, I don't yeah. even know what to do. I don't even know where to start. So yeah, you know, I, I kind of sent her over to my blog. I've got like a four part advocating for instrumentals over there. But I just told her, I'm like, if you just, you know, you might have to sit down and take some time out of your day, take some time at lunch and write out a whole letter and why you need it. And, you know, I've got all this, the sources on my website, steal a couple of those, but you know, they may not be able to give you the time of day during the day, but if you can sit down and write a nice supportive letter, yeah. they might be a lot more receptive to at least reading that. And don't, don't give up at the first no. They're going to tell you no. They're going to give you a quick no rather than a slow yes. So they're going to say, they're always going to say no. Um, at least that's been my experience. But it took us two years in the outpatient facility to finally get fees. And in my private practice, I'm a little bit you know, I, you know, I have more say, obviously, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I'm able to buy whatever I, um, you know, whatever I need to do my job. But when you're dealing with the powers that be, you've got to be resolute. You've got to just stick to it and just know that the don't give up on that first no. Yeah. Because you're going to hear no a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know when I, I interviewed Ed, um, I did a podcast with Ed Bice a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about, you know, they say, well, the last, you know, SLP didn't have access to this. Well, yeah. we were talking about the cancer research. You know, well, what if, what if you had the same cancer doctor as somebody from 30 years ago? Like our yeah. practices evolved. <laughs> That's the whole point of research is to keep improving upon our practice. And then it's up to us as clinicians to, you know, now we know this and now we should do better and now we should use this equipment. Exactly. Exactly. Because what is that saying? When you know better, you do better. Yeah. Everyone needs a little yeah. Maya Angelou in their life. Is that Maya Angelou? I don't know who it is, but yeah, that all that it is that came to my mind. So yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Oh yeah. Well, that was good. Oh, I just love that, Yvette. Oh, thank you. Okay. I'm going to throw another question at you here. So I ask everybody to tell me what is there a particular study or paper or treatment strategy that has changed the way you think of dysphagia or treat your patients with dysphagia? Oh my gosh, Teresa, how much time do we have? Got all day. <laughs> well, I think the research paper, I, you know, I'm not one of those people like Ed Bice yeah. who, who has all these papers m memorized. Um, I literally, you know, I can't, I don't have these all in my brain. So when I need to look at something I, or to re refer to something or if I'm looking for a particular paper on something, I default to a PubMed search just like most normal people. Um, Ed Bice is exceptional in that regard. <laughs> he's got... Yeah, he's incredible. I know. 
he's incredible. His brain can store all that research information. Mine cannot. And I do read a lot of research, but I just, you know, I, I can't pull a paper out of my, out of the sky when I need it. I have to do a search. But I think for me, one of the, the most seminal papers would probably be Langmore's Predictors of Aspiration Pneumonia. Because, you know, it's, it's one of those papers that's very translational. And by that, I mean, it can easily translate from you know, what was done in the lab to clinical practice. And it's, it's easy to read. It's easy for patients and families to understand. And sometimes I will even refer to that paper um, when I'm talking to patients and families. And so I think for me, I'm always looking for the translational research. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm wanting to see how is this going to impact me as a clinician? How's it gonna impact my assessment and treatment? Is it going to change what I do? Can I use this in everyday life? That's what I'm always looking for. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was because I wanted to find the papers that were applicable to our profession. That's why I like to ask everybody, you know, what they found was most important. But, you know, it's interesting. I think I was talking, I forget who I was talking with about this paper, but I, and I even went back in my binder from grad school and this paper was not in, I didn't hear about this in grad school. It wasn't? No, was not in my binder. Really? <laughs> yeah, and it was a few years after that I kept hearing about it, I kept hearing about it, and then I looked it up myself. And so I had to learn about this paper myself. And, you know, I was the same as probably a lot of young clinicians. I just feared aspiration so much. I thought that was, you know, the be-all, end-all. If you had a swallowing problem and you aspirated, you were toast. Yeah. Well, that's what we were taught. Well, I wasn't taught anything. I mean, I didn't... <laughs> I didn't even have a class in dysphagia. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you say this is not in your binder. I tell you, if any of my graduate students are listening, this paper had better first and foremost in your binder. It's one of the first ones yeah. we typically talk about in my class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, if you're not familiar with this paper, it is The Predictors of Aspiration by Dr. Susan Langmore. And this one was in 2002. It's a retrospective study of nursing home patients, and they looked at over 100,000 patients, and and it'll be listed in the show notes for this episode. But basically, there are seven more conditions that can lead to aspiration more than just a swallowing impairment. So things that put you at a higher risk for aspiration other than just a swallowing impairment. So the first one is suctioning. The second one is COPD. The third one is having a feeding tube. Fourth one is bedridden. Fifth one is case mix index, so meaning a highly complex patient. The sixth is delirium. The seventh is weight loss. And then the eighth is a swallowing problem. So all those other seven things are super important to consider. That's the big takeaway with this paper is that there are a lot of other factors that can influence somebody's or a patient's illness and in turn whether or not they actually get sick. Right. Right, right. And so I think that that is, was the biggest takeaway for me, um, especially that feeding tube one as well. Yeah. And yeah. The, I also use this paper sometimes when talking to physicians about that because, you know, a lot of them want to go straight to that tube. Um, that's just what they think is going to make the patient the safest. So I, I just think it's one of those seminal papers that everybody should know about. And UMD grad students, if you're listening, this better be in your binder. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And in, and in episode six, we talked about that with Dan, we talked about the, the feeding tubes. But, 
you know, I mean, we think of someone that, you know, say on an instrumental, they had penetration or aspiration on on one trial out of 30. Yeah. And they have none of these other predictors. Exactly. You know, are you going to put them MPO? No, you're yeah. not. But if you have somebody that's got aspiration on a bunch of trials, also a COPD, also is on a feeding tube, you know, that's when you can assess all these other factors and say, yeah, this person is at a much higher risk of aspiration. We definitely need to, you know, maybe make a diet modification or get a better treatment plan going. So that's yeah. kind of what we mean when we beat the dead horse of thinking critically about our patients. <laughs> well, and and that's, you know, you're right. And I think that's a nice segue into something else that I was going to talk about. If you think about what we have to do to solve these complex critical cases. I mean, we think about, everybody knows about that evidence-based triad that's client, uh, what is it, client preferences, clinician experiences, um, and then whatever the research literature says. So if you think about this evidence-based triad and everything that we have to do in order to kind of make these um, differential diagnosis and these, how, how are we going to treat this patient? We take in all this external evidence, really you know, in the form of clinical research, or I like to say translational research, to get some of that background knowledge that really helps substantiate our clinical decisions. I mean, that that's my personal opinion. We cannot just guess. And so if we're talking about advocacy, we have to be able to know what we're advocating for and why. I mean, we can't we can't guess. And so I personally, I think this is the key to our success as clinicians and for us as speech pathologists to, to maintain our status as the preferred provider for dysphagia services. Because I think, you know, at the rate we're going now, you know, we, we might need to think about this a little bit more. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's just one thing. I think it's really important for us to remember that we can't guess and that we have to know what we're advocating for because there are a lot of things that really go into making the decision that go into help us making the decision um but we we can't we can't treat what we can't see and i know we've heard that a lot probably in your podcast yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but you can't you've got you've got to look at the case history you've got data collection and then you've got analysis of the evidence which is really based on the data that we've gathered during our initial assessment, but all of that needs an instrumental or a visualization piece to verify it. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Someone emailed me this week and asked when we were going to stop talking on the podcast about the need for instrumentals, when I was going to have a guest on that would talk about the importance of the bedside and not beat the dead horse of the instrumental assessments. I don't think anybody has ever said that the bedside isn't important. What was your response? Well, I just said, you're never going to find me say that instrumentals are not important. So mm-hmm. if that's what you're looking for, this podcast may not be for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the clinical clinical assessment, of course, is important. We do need that. We do need the information obtained from that. But do I think you can make a perfectly reliable treatment plan, diet modifications just from a clinical without imaging? No, I. that's my opinion. I don't think so. And I think we have a lot of research that can back that up also. Well, yeah, I don't think that's, I think that your opinion, that opinion is based in, in fact. And, yeah. you know, you can, the, the clinical bedside is going to give us a, a good, you know, you, you're going to be able to develop a hypothesis, so to speak. I mean, if we're thinking from research terms, but then how are you testing that hypothesis? You know, you, you, you're just going to guess. Yep. You yep. have to use some sort of instrumentation or visualization if a firm 
diagnosis is needed. And when we are consulted by physicians, usually a firm <laughs> diagnosis is needed. They're, they're consulting us to ask us to help them manage their patient. Right. If someone asks me a question, I want to give them the best possible answer that I can give them within the scope of my practice, especially when someone's life is at stake. Absolutely. I am going to utilize everything that is available to me. And, you know, having said that, I know that instrumentation is not available for everyone. But when it's not available, that is when we need to say, okay, I don't have what I need to do to do my job. We're not suggesting that everyone needs an instrumental exam, but what we are suggesting is, is that when a firm diagnosis is needed, if more information needs to be gathered, visualization is necessary. That's the bottom line. There's, there's, there's science. This is not something that we're making up. The science backs that up. Right. right. So unfortunately, I think it's difficult to change the culture in our field. You know, again, this is something that we've done for so long that it's going to take time for people to understand the importance of instrumentation and why we need to advocate for it. So that's why I was saying earlier in the podcast is that it needs to start, it needs to be part of our education. Absolutely. So that when we're in the classroom, we're talking about advocating for instrumentals, just like we're talking about thick and liquids. It's just part of our conversation. It's so that, so that when we're out in, in the field, it's not something that seems foreign to us that right. we're talking about this. We've talked about it for so long that it's just part of who we are. And so unfortunately, changing that culture is, is difficult. It's going to be difficult. But I think for those of us who instruct, for those of us who have students come as interns, we can do our part. You know, we can make a, a difference in our little bitty corner of the world right. just by suggesting you know, planting that seed and, you know, watching it grow. So I think that if all of us are, you know, planting our little seeds where we are, I think that eventually we will... We'll have a big, huge sunflower farm. Yeah, it was, yes, I was trying to think of a great analogy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we're going to keep talking about advocating for instrumentation and visualization because those kinds of things are what water that little seed that we're planting. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think going back to what you said about 